Jesus, I have brought you this. Kat, are you sure? You know whoever sits on the stool makes all the decisions. I know, and your decisions are perfect, so that's why giving this to you is my last decision. Wow, I'm honored. This feels great. Hey, Kat. I just got paid. You want to go shopping? I thought your parents wanted you to save up to help pay for college. Well, yeah, but I need new clothes for college, right? Plus, what my parents don't know can't hurt them. No. No? Why? I mean, let me check my schedule, and I'll get back to you. Okay, just text me. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, what do you mean? I'm kind of one cheek in it here. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. I can sit on the stool, right? Oh, of course. And whoever sits on the stool makes all the decisions, right? Right. So what's the problem? There is no problem, Jesus. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. This is your seat. All right, good. Let's start again. I've been seeing you losing your temper a lot recently. Okay, Jesus. I know exactly what you're talking about. But I don't think you totally understand the situation here. Kat, I'm just trying to say, attitude is a decision. Okay, but Jesus, I'm going through a lot right now. I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? You don't know pressure. I don't think this is working. Well, what do you mean? We can't both sit on this stool. It's either you or it's me. I know. It's you. I just didn't think it would be this hard. I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. I know. Make a choice. I can't. You just did. You know, a whole lot of life revolves around who or what we trust. It's not always easy for us to trust other people, and as we just saw, it's not always easy to trust God. What is easy is for us to battle God for control. We battle him for the right to sit on the stool and to make the decisions. And yet, if we want to live as people of faith, then we need to learn to trust God more than ourselves. King Solomon, writing in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 5, says it this way, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. You see, when the chips are down and when we stand at critical points in life, it is vital for you and I to embrace King Solomon's advice because our own understanding only will take us so far. Trust in God is what can carry us through because he knows us better than we know ourselves. We must learn to trust. And one of the best places to learn about trust in God is in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at some portions of that chapter today. We're going to begin in Hebrews 11, 1, and the Bible verses, they're on the screen for you. Great. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now the author of Hebrews uses the word faith throughout this chapter, but another way to understand faith is trust in God. If we have faith, then it means that we trust. And yet what he writes here raises a valid question. How can we trust a God who is invisible? After all, isn't it foolish to believe in someone or something that we can't see? Well, I'd like to do a little experiment. 
And kids, I'm so glad that you are here with us today, and I want you to watch very closely. I've got here a box of file folders. It could be a box of anything. But watch what happens when I let go of this box. Why did that box fall down and hit the stage instead of floating around the room? Kids, anybody got an answer? Gravity. Yes. Gravity, gravity, gravity. I heard the right answer. Now, here's the, here's the real question. Did you just see gravity? No. Why not? Because gravity's invisible. Okay? We did not just see gravity. What we saw was the results of gravity. And it's a fascinating thing. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that gravity exists, but not because we can see it. We know it's real because of the force it produces. And because we know it's real and we know it's strength, then we trust it and fear it. The knowledge of gravity actually affects the way we behave. I trust gravity to keep you in your seats and me on my feet. Otherwise, we all be floating all around the room. And I have a healthy fear of gravity, which is why I would not walk to the edge of a 1,000-foot cliff and step off. Because I know that would be a foolish choice that would result in some painful consequences. Gravity shows us that we can know about and trust things that are invisible. And what is true for gravity is true for God. When we examine our world and our universe, we do not see God. But everywhere we look, we see the fingerprints of God. We see the handiwork of an all-powerful creator. The creator mentioned here by the author of Hebrews. I want, I want us to, to understand just one example of the fingerprint of God on our creation. Now most of us know some things about this world from our science classes. We probably know that electrons and protons are very tiny elements that help form the basis of life. But here's something I didn't know until about 10 years ago. Scientists have determined that for human life to exist, the number of electrons in our world must be almost exactly matched to the number of protons. And the margin for error is excruciatingly small. The difference between those, electrons and protons, cannot differ by more than in 1 in 10 to the 37th power. That's the number one, followed by 37 zeros. That is way more than a million or a billion or a trillion. Let's try and get a handle on that. I don't gamble, but I know that if you go to the horse races and you place your bet on a horse whose odds are 20 to 1, you're probably going to lose your money because those are very long odds. And yet that's not even close to the odds of getting the electron-proton balance right. It's not 20 to 1. It's 10 to the 37th power to 1. Those odds are so long, they're almost impossible to understand. And yet Dr. Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist, he offers a great illustration to help us picture how hard it would be to win against those kinds of odds. So I have here some dimes. And I'm going to put them in a stack if I can get my big fat fingers around these little tiny dimes. Okay. So I have here ten dimes. Ten tiny dimes. 
and make a pretty tiny stack. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep adding to this stack until it reaches the moon, which on average is about 240,000 miles away. Now, we've got some math people here who could figure out exactly how many dimes that would be. I'm not even going to try to calculate that. It would make my head explode. But we would stack all these dimes all the way to the moon, and we won't stop there. Right next to it, we'll put another stack, and another stack, and another stack, until all of the United States is covered by stacks of dimes that reach the moon. And we don't stop there. We keep going until Canada is covered and Mexico is covered. And we don't stop there. We find one billion other continents the same size as North America. And we stack dimes on those continents all the way to the moon. Now, we're already beyond the limits of human existence and experience because obviously there aren't a billion continents on Earth the size of North America. But in this hypothetical example, we keep building all these piles one dime at a time. And then after we've got all of these piles, we take one dime and we paint it bright red. And then we hide it. We hide it in the middle of these gazillions of piles of dimes spread over a billion and one continents. And then we go to our best friend and we say, I want you to find that one red dime. You wander around among all these piles and all of these continents and on one try, pick out the red dime. And oh, by the way, you must do it blindfolded. The odds that our friend will pick out that red dime on one try are 10 to the 37th power to one. That's the kind of incredible accuracy needed to keep electrons and protons in balance so that life as we know it could exist, so that you and I can be here this morning. Do you know anyone who could create anything with that level of accuracy? I don't. All of the tech wizards in Silicon Valley could not do it. All of the brilliant men and women at MIT and Caltech could not do that. Only an all-powerful creator could do that. And if we somehow think that this electron-proton ratio is just a lucky break, and that this precise balance between them occurred by chance, guess what? There are more than 100 other variables that must be precisely fine-tuned for life to exist. Variables involving the speed of light. That can't change by much from what it is, or we wouldn't be here. The stability of the water cycle. Water, rain, evaporation. The molecular weight of hydrogen cannot differ by more than one. And on and on and on. And as we look at all of this, it shows that there is compelling evidence that we exist in a place which has been exquisitely designed for human life. So yes, it's true. God is invisible. Yet if we look, his power, his creativity are abundantly evident. So we can have assurance, as the author of Hebrews says, about the God we cannot see. 
and having assurance about the God we cannot see. This God who is our creator, having assurance about that is foundational to trust. Because if human existence is just a freak accident, then life is essentially meaningless. And if life is meaningless, then we can do what we want and when we want and how we want and we're not accountable to anyone for anything. But if we were created, created on purpose, then we were created for a purpose. I wish we could really get a hold of that. God created you and you and you and you and you and you on purpose. He has purpose for your life. And teens and kids, it is so important as you grow up to recognize that God had you in mind when he made you. And as you learn to trust him, he will give value and meaning and purpose to your life. All of this is a great reason to trust, to trust this great God who breathed the gift of life into each of us. Our creator knows us better than we know ourselves. And therefore it's logical to trust him more than we trust ourselves. It's logical to say, God, you sit on the stool. I'll let you make the big decisions. And it's possible to do that. We know it's possible because the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 offers countless examples of people who confidently trusted God in a variety of challenging circumstances. And we want to look at just a couple of those this morning. As we continue on in Hebrews 11 verse 7, we meet Noah. And we read, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Now consider this, at the time that Noah built that ark, he'd probably never seen a flood. Yet God showed up and said, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to flood the known world of that day. And Noah trusted him and built a huge boat. That future was unknown and uncertain in terms of his own personal experience, but he trusted what God said about the future more than what had happened to him in the past. He trusted God more than his own experience and more than his own knowledge. And that trust had to carry him for a long time because it took him more than 100 years to build the ark. I'll bet his neighbors thought he was nuts. God spoke to you? <laughs> There's going to be a flood? A big flood? What? Really? Trusting God is not always the most socially comfortable choice. Yet it's always the wise choice. Because only the people who trusted God survived the flood. I find myself wondering, how would you and I respond if God made it very clear that we were to live in a way different from our neighbors. A way that might cause them to question us and ridicule us. Would we trust him enough to do it? Kids, teens, how would you respond if God asked you to live in a way different from your friends at school? Would you trust God enough to do it? 
That's Noah. Verse 8, we meet Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God showed up and told Abraham, I want you to move to a land you've never seen. You're going to travel through country you've never been through before. We're not told how he felt about it. If I'd been in his shoes, I wouldn't have been very excited about packing up my family and my belongings and my flocks and going to a brand new place to live. Why would Abraham do that? He did it because he trusted God more than what was known and familiar. Sometimes we get stuck because we rest in what is known and familiar. And sometimes God says, it's time to move out of that rut. Relocating never is easy. Relocating to a strange place is even harder. And so trusting God isn't always the most physically comfortable choice. Yet it's always the wise choice. And when we recognize that God knows best what we need, and then if he prods us to move, to change in some way, then it's best to go where he urges us to go and do what he asks us to do. I'm sure you've heard a lot over the years about Moses, but how about Moses' parents? We meet them in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here's what's happening. The ruler of Egypt wanted to stamp out a potential rebellion among his slaves. And so in this particular season, he was murdering all of the newborn Jewish boys. As a result, Moses' mother and father faced a horrible choice. They could obey the king and watch their son be killed. Or they could defy the king and try to hide their son and put their own lives at risk. They trusted God more than they trusted the king. They feared God more than they feared the king. So at great risk, they hid their son and preserved his life. Trusting God more than earthly rulers can be very risky. Yet it's always the wise choice. I think of this in light of what goes on in much of our world today. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in China are the victims of official government harassment. And yet the underground church there continues to grow exponentially. And it's because the followers of Jesus know that it's wiser to trust God than the rulers of their nation. And I think we, in the midst of our current political climate, we need to seriously consider what it means for us as followers of Jesus to trust God more than politicians. Moses' parents. What a phenomenal example of trust in God. And then Moses himself. Verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
I mean, this is incredibly ironic. Moses was born as a Hebrew. He was supposed to be murdered at birth. But because of the faith of his parents, he survives, and he winds up being adopted into the family of the ruler of Egypt. In a way, it's kind of a joke that God pulled. But then, when Moses reaches adulthood, he learns he's the descendant of Hebrew slaves. What do you do in a case like that? Should Moses continue to live a lie? To maintain his prestige and his status? Or should he admit the truth and become a slave? And Moses trusted God more than his position and more than his power and more than his influence. So he became a slave. And he shows us that sometimes trusting God can involve great personal sacrifice. Yet even when it does, it's always the wise choice. Compared to the Pharaoh of Egypt, Moses lived a life that was a lot less comfortable. But it was a life that was a whole lot richer and much more meaningful. Moses chose the path of honesty and integrity. Trusting God was far more important to him than his status in this world. And he trusted that God would watch over him as he gave up all he knew. What would you and I do in a situation like that? Who or what would we trust? These are just a few of the people highlighted here in Hebrews 11. And we need to know that none of them were perfect. In fact, some of them made monumental mistakes and huge errors in judgment. But they are recorded here for us as examples of trust in God because at key moments, at crucial crossroads in their lives, they all trusted God for the future rather than relying on their own limited knowledge based on their own experiences. These people let go of their pride. They embraced humility. They got off the stool. And they said, God, you take over. You sit there. And you and I can do the very same thing. And so we need to ask, what are those areas of life where you and I battle God for control? What would it take for you and for me to be able to trust God and to trust him even more than we trust ourselves? What would it take for us to let him sit on the stool all the time, every time? It's a vital question because when we battle God for control, when our attitudes and actions demonstrate that we trust ourselves more than God, it can cause us to wind up on a spiritual plateau. Can I have that next slide, please? Is this a graph of your spiritual life, perhaps? When we're on a spiritual plateau, we find ourselves doing the same thing over and over and over. And we go to church, and we go to Bible study, and we pray, but but there's no real vitality to our faith. It's just routine. It's just what we do. It's just part of how we live. 
But there's no growth because we're on the stool, not God. And God does not want us to stay in that place because it is a place of stagnancy. He wants each of us to experience a life of rich, passionate faith. And when we trust him fully, that's when life becomes a spiritual adventure. Noah, Abraham, Moses and his parents, they all would tell us that very thing. If they could stand here today and speak to us, they would say, you can trust the invisible God. And he will make himself visible in your life. And you will see his power and his creativity and his care. But only when you truly trust him. Can we let God sit on the stool?